Well, hey, well, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming. And um, yeah, so we are preaching through the, we've just been preaching through the Ten Commandments this fall here. So yeah, baby dedication day and then Ten Commandments. So this is like, these are not polar opposite things for sure. So um, so this semester, like I said, we've been preaching through the Ten Commandments, which is in uh, Exodus 20 in the Old Testament. So and this morning, like we're on commandment number nine. So, so and after we get done with uh, this series here next week, then we're going to be having an Advent series, and that'll just uh, be in our lead-up up till Christmas. So, so if this is your first time here, uh, you might be thinking, might, not trying to read your mind or anything, but you might be thinking, oh, you're, uh, you're talking about the Ten Commandments. You're giving us a list of rules from God. Great. This is one of those kind of churches. Cool. So, so Brandon, who's one of the other pastors here, who he was up here, um, so he's been doing a great job over the last few weeks of just how ex- explaining how the Ten Commandments, they aren't just a list of rules from God. So, so if, if that's what you think about when you think about the Ten Commandments, um, I would just uh, graciously and humbly contend that that's kind of a simplistic and pretty casual way of thinking about the Ten Commandments, and it's just really not uh, a super well-rounded way of thinking about those things. So, so instead, a more well-rounded way of thinking about the Ten Commandments is that they're not just, not just a list of rules. Instead, there's a, they're a guide for what it looks like to worship God because the Ten Commandments reveal a lot about who God is and what it looks like to reflect him in our entire lives. The Ten Commandments reveal, ultimately, they reveal a lot about who God is and what it looks like to reflect him in our daily lives. So, and that's important because what I just said in that last sentence there, um, that's a pretty good definition of what worship is. So worship is about, um, ultimately about seeing who God is and reflecting who he is in our hearts and our minds and our actions and our lives. So worship isn't fundamentally about coming to church and punching the clock and doing whatever it is we do here, like, like worship is ultimately about seeing who God is and then reflecting who He is in our minds and our hearts and our actions in all parts of our lives, you know, which partly includes like being here today, but it's not just about being here today. So, so the Ten Commandments—they are not ultimately about shape up and obey these rules. Like no, no, like the Ten Commandments are ultimately about worship because they reveal who God is and how we're to reflect Him. So, and that's true for the ninth commandment, which is what we're going over today, which says, you shall not give false testimony about your neighbor. You shall not give false testimony about your neighbor. So in light of all that, um, we're just going to focus on four questions uh, this morning when it comes to the ninth commandment. So, so four questions are, so how is this command instructing us? What does this command reveal about God? How is this command confronting us, and how does the gospel transform us? So, let's pray. So, God, um, yeah, we know that um, we can only see things, like, from your word, unless, like, you really open our eyes and empower us, so we just really need you for that. Um, Yeah, we need you um, to have me to um, speak with clarity and um, and humility and boldness. So we just, and we just also need to have us us have, uh, collectively have ears to hear your word, so... Yeah, we need you for that, and we love you. Amen. So first question, so how is this command instructing us? How is this command instructing us? So big picture, what we see often throughout the Ten Commandments is that each commandment gives us 
the worst example of sinning in some kind of way. It gives us the worst example of sinning in some kind of way. For example, uh, hopefully it is uncontroversial to say that murder is the worst way of breaking the sixth commandment, which we went over a couple weeks, a few weeks ago. But Jesus tells us that murder isn't the only way to break it. Like Jesus said that you can be angry with someone, and on a heart level, that's tantamount to murder. And adultery is the worst way of breaking the seventh commandment. But Jesus says that adultery isn't the only way to break it. Jesus said if you lust after someone, then that's tantamount to committing adultery in your heart. And the same is true for the ninth commandment, because the worst way of breaking this commandment was to give false testimony about your neighbor. So when God says that in the ninth commandment, what he's talking about is that, like, that's talking about the context of a courtroom where someone's life could be snuffed out if you falsify the, falsify the truth. And that's because, you know, because we live in a different world than it was, like, like, several thousand years ago, like, when this was written, but... Like in the ancient world, someone's eyewitness testimony, that meant everything. And of course, eyewitness, eyewitness testimony still means a lot today. But today, we also have stuff like audio recordings and video surveillance and fingerprints and DNA testing and things like that. But like in the ancient world, they didn't have any of that. So in the ancient world, if someone stood up to accuse someone of wrongdoing and a second person stood up to like to accuse with the same accusation, the life of the accused could be in jeopardy. So that's why if you gave false testimony about someone in the ancient world, that was a really big deal. So which is why the ninth commandment says, like, you shall not give false testimony about your neighbor, against your neighbor. So giving false testimony in a court of law in the ancient world where someone's life could be in jeopardy, was arguably the worst way to break the ninth commandment. But just like the other commands, like, it's not the only way to break it. So, for example, when we straight up lie or stretch the truth or inappropriately exaggerate or spread falsehoods or drop hints of gossip or slander in public or private settings, etc., etc., like, there's so many ways... That stuff, like whatever you want to call that, like that stuff fits into the junk drawer of what this command is pointing towards. But even beyond that, this command is ultimately pointing us to loving the truth and being characterized by truthfulness. This command is ultimately pointing us to loving the truth and being characterized by truthfulness. So next question, so like, what is this command revealing about God? What is this command revealing about God? So think about it. So why is it important to be truthful? Well, let's not just make that assumption. Like, why is it important to be truthful? So there's a lot of, re- there's a lot of reasons that are easy to come up with, such as like, people will stop trusting you if you lie. Like, people will get mad at you if you spread falsehoods. Like, if you, tell the, if, you, if you tell a bunch of things that aren't true to people, like, it just gets pretty stressful because remembering all the fabrications that you tell people. So it's actually a less stressful life if you actually tell the truth to people. It's like, and all of those things are true. You know, like, but the thing is, is that, like, all those pragmatic reasons that I just gave right there, um, 
you don't need to be a Christian to know that and believe that. You don't need to be a Christian to agree with all that. But from a Christian perspective, being, being characterized by being truthful is important because truthfulness is at the very nature of who God is. So think about it. Like, What makes God God and not us? What makes God God and not us? So there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is, is that God doesn't lie. He doesn't stretch the truth. He doesn't spread false, subtle falsehoods, like, ever. So Titus chapter 1 in the New Testament talks about how God has, has made promises, and uh, Paul's the writer of that book, and Titus right there, and Paul, the writer, he just says, like, you know, God has made all these promises, and he grounds the certainty of those promises in this, like, Man, this uh, loaded but terse phrase of God, comma, who does not lie. And in John chapter 14 and in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He says, I am the truth. So Jesus doesn't simply state that he says true things. He says, I am the truth. So if one of my daughters said, said to me, Dad, I eat chocolate pudding, I'd be like, cool. But if one of my daughters said, Dad, I am chocolate pudding, I'd be like, what? So, and there, there's a big difference between those two statements right there. Jesus says, I am the truth. That's because truthfulness is at the very nature of who God is. Truthfulness is at the very nature of who God is. And there's a lot of us in this room that are somewhere in the process of considering who God is. But just for a minute, let's just all assume that there is an all-powerful God out there who exists and he self-identifies himself as a father and he wants to be in a relationship with us. Let's just make that assumption. And let's just say hypothetically that at some point we discover that not everything that God says to us is actually truthful. So if that was the case, then on some level, that would probably be crushing in, in one way or another. And unfortunately, like, some of you have had the, that kind of experience with your earthly fathers. So if you haven't had that experience, like, that's, that's super great, but some of you have had the experience where at some point you discovered that your dad lied to you and wasn't truthful to you or your family. And especially if you discovered that when you were young, then in all likelihood, that crushed you. Like for, and for good reason. Because regardless of whether you self-identify as a Christian, everybody at a young age knows in one way or another that it's crushing and wrong for a father to lie. And you need to know that your heavenly father is the true and the better version of your earthly father. 
because it's impossible for him to lie to you. And that's because truthfulness is irrevocably embedded into the nature of who he is. And if that weren't the case, then he wouldn't be worthy for us to worship. He wouldn't be worthy for us to live our lives in light of him. And he wouldn't be worthy to to be our heavenly father. And we see that in the ninth command, the, in the ninth commandment, like God's truthfulness is revealed to us, and therefore, reflecting who He is in our life means that we are to pursue being truthful people. So the Ten Commandments, in this kind of way, it's not just oh, it's, eh, some kind of rules that would be good for human flourishing. Yeah, but like, no, it's more than that. It's like it. It's a guide for what, what worship looks like in our hearts and minds and lives. It's like we see who God is and we reflect who he, he is a truthful God and therefore like we love and we exalt and like we cherish him above all and therefore that's why we are naturally truthful people. So next question, so how is this command confronting us? How is this command confronting us? Now, confronting... Um, that shouldn't be an idea that we avoid because in a spiritual sense, confronting leads to life. I'm using confronting in a good way, in a positive way. So this isn't a perfect analogy, but like when you're lifting weights, I mean, you know this, I mean like when you lift weights on purpose, or maybe not on purpose too, just like that creates like, like small little tears like in your muscles and then, like, over the next couple of days when your body, like, heals, you know, and recovers, it's like your muscles grow back stronger from those, like, creating those tears right there. So from a physical standpoint, your muscles only grow when they're first confronted with what feels like pain. But that's how they grow. And the same is true for us spiritually, because from a spiritual standpoint, we often grow when we're first confronted with what first feels like pain. That's how we grow. So bottom line, we all dabble in various forms of lying and falsehoods and stretching the truth, inappropriate fabrications, like whatever you want to call that, like we all dabble in one way or another in that. So when you say you have time to do something but you know you actually don't, when you act like you really know something about something, a lot about something, but you know you actually don't. When you exaggerate and frame yourself as a hero in some kind of anecdote, when in reality um, you weren't as actually noble and blameless as the, the, as the protagonist in that story that you're trying to be, picture yourself to be. Or when you exaggerate and frame um, someone else as being the bad guy, just like in the story that you're telling when you exaggerate something on your LinkedIn profile so that those employment recruiters will just like see you just a little bit more clearly, when you conveniently withhold important information in a business meeting that would have potentially left you in a position of vulnerability, when you cut corners on your taxes, if you're sophisticated enough to know how to do that, Like when you're talking to a customer service rep and you're not totally forthcoming about like how that piece of technology got broken, but you'd love it for still, still to be eligible for the warranty. 
when you're at small group and you're talking to a really good friend one-on-one and you talk about all everything you did last weekend, but, you know, except for the fact that, like, man, like, you just left out the fact that, like, you and your wife got pretty drunk, like, one night together. And for whatever reason, like, when you consistently put forth a false version of yourself to others. You know, we think this is only a teenager kind of thing, but, like, even as adults, like, it's easy to get into the habit of wearing a mask around one group of people and then just um, taking it off when we're done with that group of people and then putting on a different kind of mask with another group of people and we just get used to this habit of, like, just wearing different masks, masks around different kinds of people. And you can call that whatever you want, but what's going on there is that you're putting forth a false version of yourself. And let's not miss the forest from the trees, because cause again, like the ultimate reason why, why those things don't line up with the ninth commandment is because in all those things, we're not reflecting who God is in our lives. Like, truthfulness is a revocable part of who he is, and part of what makes him a good father. And that's why we're called to reflect the truthfulness of who he is like in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. And when we reflect him in that way, like that's worship. So next question, so how does the gospel transform us? How does the gospel transform us? So in order to see how the gospel transforms us, um, we need to first ask the question, why do, we, why do we sin in any particular instance in the first place? That's a big picture question right there. So um, there's a guy named Martin Luther. He was a preacher and a theologian in the 1500s. And he talked about, um, when he talked about the Ten Commandments, he said that the first commandment, okay, the first one listed, that's foundational to all the other commandments. And he said that's because we won't break commandments. He said we won't break commandments number 2 through 10 unless we are in some way first breaking commandment number 1 in some way. So, I mean, it's okay if you don't remember everything in this preaching series. Totally fine, okay? But, like, do you remember what the first commandment was? This isn't Bible memory time. Okay, so it's those, it was, the first commandment was, you shall, not have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So Luther says, if you break any of the like, commandments 2 through 10, that's ultimately because you've first broken command number 1 in some kind of way. So let's apply that to command number 9. All right. So if you, have, if you have tendencies towards falsehoods or stretching the truth and consistently presenting a false version of yourself, like any of any of the, if you have tendencies towards any of that, then according to Luther, and I would agree with this, like the reason is ultimately because you've broken command number one. Because in that, when that happens, there's something, when you break command number one, like there's something in your heart that you're trusting and elevating above God himself. And whatever you're elevating and trusting in your heart, like, that's worship. So from a gospel perspective, lying and falsehoods, they aren't, 
they aren't simply behavior, outward behavior issues, like surface behavior issues. No, like, like it's a worship issue. And that might sound a little strange. Like the optics of that might sound a little strange. Like on the, you know, hearing that, it's just like, but, um, but like, you know, like when when I lie, it's almost like there's this mini worship service going on in my heart. And ultimately, on a heart level, we want whatever we're worshiping to save us. When we lie. We're doing so because we want lies and falsehoods to save us from something. So the question is, when you, re- when you engage in lies and falsehoods, what are you wanting to be saved from? What are you wanting to be saved from? So for example, if your personal hell at work is not being adequately recognized or not being promoted or having your supervisor be displeased with you in some kind of way, if, if, those things, if those kinds of things are your personal hell, you will be tempted in your heart to use lying and falsehoods to save you from all those things that you fear at work. But the way out of that is to believe that Jesus is the one who saves you from all those things. Like not lying in falsehoods. Because Jesus is the one who ultimately sees us and approves of us, and he is the one who gives us identity, so we don't need to find that at work, so like he is the one like, who gives us that. And we, we believe that in our heart. We are free to be characterized by truthfulness and uh, appropriate levels of vulnerability and transparency in our workplace, like even when it might cost us. Another example, let's say like your personal hell has something to do with not having enough money. Not having enough money. So if that's your personal hell, you will be tempted in, ve- in your various financial dealings to use lying and falsehoods to save you from all the things you fear about not having money. But the way out of that is to believe that Jesus is the one who saves you, and he's the one who provides everything you need, which includes everything that you need financially. Like, Jesus is your provider and savior. Like, not lying and falsehoods. Like, like God himself is the one who's ultimately your provider. So that, like, man, like, when I believe that, like, I'm able to, that frees me to walk fully in truthfulness in my financial dealings, even when that's going to cost me. So another example um, is if there's something about your past or something about you that you have some level of like embarrassment or shame about, often in those kinds of situations, like your personal hell is being exposed or being found out or just plain being known. If any of those things are your personal hell, then you're probably going to be tempted to consistently put forth a false version of yourself. And on a side note, like, not everyone should know every single piece of information about us. Duh. Okay? So, like, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12, like, Paul's writing this letter to, like, the whole, that gets, that letter's going to get read to the whole church in, in, in Corinth right there. So, like, and what Paul says in chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians is, like, He's like, he just talks really vulnerably about like, man, like I have this 
figuratively, because he's talking this figurative way, like, man, I got this thorn in my flesh, and like, gosh, it's like, you know, it's like something that he's really struggling with. So like, but he doesn't say what more what that is. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't super elaborate on what that is. You know, it's like not everyone needs to know like every single piece of information about us. Okay, so, okay, with that big qualifier aside, okay, um, often when we consistently project a false version of ourselves, it's because we want to be saved from some kind of personal hell. But the good news of the gospel is that two things are totally and fully true. Like, we are fully known, and we are fully loved. God fully knows you. Like, if your personal hell is being found out, the good news is that you've already been found out. Like, God fully knows you, and he fully loves you. Like, he doesn't just, like, he doesn't, when you say he fully loves you, he doesn't love, like, the you that you're pretending to be or the you that you're projecting to be, the you that you're in sales and marketing trying to, like, project onto everyone else. No, no, like, he loves the real you. And when you believe that you are fully safe and secure through surrendering your life to him and putting your saving faith in him, what that functionally does in a really practical way is that that's intended to relax you and to open you up to taking off the mask and pursuing like healthy levels of real vulnerability and real transparency, with, not just with God, but with others. So in this kind of way, like, that's, how the, that's one of the really practical ways that God really, how um, the gospel really transforms people in a local church and and the byproduct of that is that it just creates um, the kind of, a kind of community in a local church that is just really life-giving and unique, and you just like can't really find that anywhere else. Like, it's a beautiful thing; it really does. And I'm not implying that River City is perfect with that. Like, I'm not saying that any other church is perfect with that. But like, I'm just saying that like when the gospel is believed and it transforms the community in a local church, that's the kind of community that's like life-giving, and there really is nothing like that. And if that's something that you've experienced at River City in your time here, like that's because God has been empowering us to believe the gospel and be transformed by it. And that's one of the ways that we see how the Ten Commandments just really leads to life. It's not just a bunch of rules. It's about like it leads to life. It's ultimately about worship, and that's the invitation to you this morning. So when we take communion here at River City, that's a symbolic way of responding to the invitation of pursuing life through being transformed by the gospel. It really is. We do communion every week, and it's not something we go through the motions with. Like, if you want the gospel to transform you, then you need to respond to his invitation of coming under his lordship, putting your faith in him and surrendering to him. And when we, when we do that, like in our heart, like we're turning away from our personal hells and the things that we want to save us, whether that's lying or falsehoods or wearing a mask or whatever it may be. And when you take communion, you're saying that on a heart level, like 
Jesus is the one you want to worship, and he's the one you want to save you. He's the one you want to follow. The bread, that symbolizes his body. It's like the, the drink, that symbolizes his blood. His, his body and his blood were broken and shed for you. You're the one that deserved to be broken and shed. No, Jesus was the one who was broken and shed for you. I encourage you to like just pray before communion. Talk to him authentically, and don't make communion going through a religious exercise of going through the motions. Like I said, we don't go through the motions a few things here at River City. So if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to, take, um, to hold off on taking communion if that's something that you're not ready for, because we don't want you to go through the motions of like stuff like that. But man, like, but that being said, if you're ready to respond to him, like and receive him as your forgiver and as your leader, and you want to worship him on a heart level as your forgiver and as your leader, then go take communion. That's for everyone. Man, communion is not for the spiritual giants. Like it's for people who are just, they want to believe and they want to ask, they are broken before God. Of just saying, like, God, like, I do believe, but you got to help me with my unbelief. It's like, come to him, surrender to him. So there's two communion stations in the back. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice, you take it that way. So the worship team is going to be playing three songs, and you can go up and take communion whenever you're ready during those three songs. Let's pray. So God, we're just thankful that you like uh, you invite us into life, and that like um, we're thankful that you don't give us uh, man just a bunch of man random rules, you know, just the, because you're trying to control us or something like that. But like you really love us, and you want us to to worship you and to come under you and to just really acknowledge you and follow you, God. So man, we're just really thankful that um, we're thankful that you set you set everything up like that. So we just ask you for, for all of us, like individually and collectively, to just really um, come under you, like as we, we respond to you through communion and musical worship. And yeah, we're just, we want to say that we're thankful for you too. And we love you. Amen.